Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Good morning, friends. It is so good to have the opportunity to connect with you this morning. I've just been really looking forward to unpacking the next few verses in the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you haven't joined us for a while, uh, we'll be, we're slowly working through our way of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's been a while already, and I, I think there's, there's lots more to come. And uh, so I'm not sure what our schedule is, but I think we'll be here for the next few months at least. So... My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to invite you to open up your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30, which is where we ended last week, and we'll be reading all the way up to verse 44. What's significant about this is that what the text we're about to read is of a miraculous event that is recorded in all four Gospels. And this is the only miraculous or miracle besides the resurrection, which is, uh, has that, uh, that significance to it. So let's uh, allow me to read, uh, starting in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Father God, we pray that as we open this portion of Scripture, we pray that your Spirit would do a transformative work in us. Lord, we sincerely want to grow. We don't want to just remain the same. And we pray that you would do a work in us now as we open this passage in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh, this is good. Isn't it so incredible when we have the opportunity to open up a portion of Scripture that was written to a group of people 
thousands of years ago who were hiding for their lives. I know it was a couple months back where we talked about the origin of the Gospel of Mark and how it was written to uh, Christians in Rome who were hiding underground, literally in the tombs and the catacombs under Rome. And the Gospel of Mark is the eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter dictated to Mark who wrote it. And it would have been read as, uh, and people would have been listening to it as, as it was first uh, communicated to them. And here we are, in chapter 6, we're reintroduced to a crowd that, or to a, a character that we've been introduced before, and it is the crowd. The crowd is the character that we're introduced to now. The crowd has shown up at various points throughout the Gospel of Mark so far. In chapter 1, verse 33, after Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law, uh, a crowd formed and brought more sick for Jesus to heal. And again, in, in chapter 1, after Jesus heals the leper, news spreads and the crowd grows, making it difficult for Jesus to even even walk through villages and town any longer. And then in chapter 3, many within a crowd were pushing through, trying to touch Jesus, which forced Jesus to teach the crowds from a boat just off the shore in the Sea of Galilee. And there are many more references. The crowd shows up over and over and over again. And at many times, the crowd seems eager to grow in their understanding of Jesus. Um, or to receive long-sought-after healing, while at other times it seems that the people that joined the crowd were there for less noble reasons. So what is it this time? Why is there a crowd gathering? Well, by studying today's text, we can glean several clues which can help guide our understanding. And the clues are the size of the crowd, the location of the crowd, and the actions of the crowd. First, the size. This is a big crowd. Now, we don't know the exact number, but by the end of the story, uh, they reference 5,000 males. Now, that doesn't include women or children, meaning the size of the crowd would have been much larger. And even if it was only 5,000, that's much larger than any of the villages in that region. And to imagine that Jesus is interacting with a crowd of this size is a significant detail. Secondly, the location. They are located not far from the community of Gamala. Now, this community was the epicenter of the zealot freedom movements, which rose up again and again through the years to oppose the Roman government, to revolt and try and reform the place and attempt to install a new political structure. That's something that the Romans weren't very fond of. Galilee already had a reputation for being a region that resisted the Romans, So consider the optics. We've got a giant crowd, much larger than the communities around, all gathering together within eyesight of Gamala, which is known for its revolting and and its issues. The optics aren't good, Jesus. What are you doing? Finally, the actions. Well, Mark doesn't give us perspective of what the crowd was thinking. The Apostle John does. In his account of the feeding of the 5,000, the story concludes with this. In John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So friends, I think we would be a mess if we assumed that this crowd was a relaxed crowd out for a Sunday picnic, gentle enough for a flannel graph. As we begin the study of this text here today, we should assume that this crowd is thousands large, it's busy and tense, and their motives are unclear, but the rumblings in the crowd are concerning. 
Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, ran on foot from all the, town, all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So I'm not sure what exactly initiated them to get into the boat, but I sense that Jesus saw what was happening in the crowds. Said, Guys, let's get on the boat. Let's go find a quiet place where we can rest. And attempting to find a quiet place to land, Jesus and the apostles pilot the boat toward shore, and they see the large crowd. Now, I'm, I'm sure there were confusion, and there was confusion and potential concern on the faces of the apostles. Why had thousands run along the shore to be where Jesus and the apostles would be, where, where they would land? Were they people who had heard Jesus could heal diseases? Were they people looking for a new teaching? Were they uh, people associated with the religious systems wanting to catch Jesus saying something controversial in order to justify his execution, as we had seen earlier in Mark? Or was this crowd looking to forcefully make Jesus their military leader to push for freedom from the Romans? Well, there must have been some in the crowd who sincerely wanted to walk with Jesus in sacrificial, enemy-loving obedience. The risk to Jesus by engaging with this crowd is significant. Jesus sees the crowd, and he has a decision to make. Does he get back on the boat, or does he engage with the crowd? Do you notice Jesus' posture in this moment? He doesn't reprimand the crowd. He doesn't say, you know, come back when you're looking for more than just a healing, or come back when you're looking for more than just a, a, a new teaching. Uh, come back when you're finished looking for a military leader. He doesn't wait for the crowd to come around. He doesn't wait for them to repent or to get their lives in order. Jesus is moved with compassion and begins engaging with the crowd, with the crowd from within the perspective that they come with. Jesus could see what the crowd wanted, but Jesus got out of the boat to give the crowd what they really needed. Jesus' non-anxious presence jumps off the pages of this story. It's like Jesus looks at the crowd, moved with compassion, and says under his breath, you know, I can, I can work with this. There are no prerequisites to Jesus' compassion. I am so blessed by the fact that when Jesus sees people that are a hot mess, his reaction is compassion. And it means that there's hope for us. You know, Jesus' extravagant compassion confronts us within our rebellion, within our brokenness, within our darkness, our faulty logic, and within our selfishness. A few years back, I was connecting with some believers in Thailand. And I noticed that whenever they would share their testimonies, they would consistently use the phrase, Jesus pulled me out of the pit. Jesus' extravagant compassion enters into the pit, into the mud, to whisper into our ear, I can work with this. Last week, I was connecting with somebody uh, who has attended Grant for a long while. He works as a paramedic, and I asked, I asked permission to share this story. This individual is someone who prays regularly. 
that God would use them to shine for Jesus and be used as Jesus' hands and feet throughout each day. Last week, while they were on shift, they were asked to respond to a mental health emergency. When they arrived at the scene, they found a woman who was the mother of five young kids sitting on the ground in the front yard of her home in the middle of a mud puddle. She was experiencing a psychiatric trauma and was responding to what was making sense in her head at that moment. In an attempt to make it stop, this woman had been taking mud and had been jamming it into her ears and had taken mud and opened up her eyelids and jammed it into her eyes as much as she could. And there was other responders around, kind of the edge of the yard. But my friend was moved with compassion. And instead of asking the woman to Can you come out of the mud, come towards my voice, my friend entered the mud. He got down on his knees in the middle of the puddle. And after helping scrape the mud out of her ears, my friend whispered the words, Jesus loves you and he has a plan for your life. The woman began to weep tears flowing, and it started to loosen the mud packed into her eyes. And when I hear that story, I think immediately of Psalm 40. It says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my, lo- in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Friends, the compassion of Jesus says, I can work with this. Jesus looks at you and he looks at me. He sees people who talk a big game on Sunday but struggle to walk in obedience through the week. He sees people who desire to be faithful but who continually stumble. Jesus sees the mess of our world. He looks at you, he looks at me, and his compassion says, I can work with this. And in Jesus' compassion, he gets out of the boat and begins to teach the crowd, inviting them to consider a new way to live, a life that doesn't require another healing or just another teaching or just another military leader. The crowd believed they knew what they wanted, but Jesus was the one to provide for them what they truly needed. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now the apostles are observing everything that's going on here. And they're also observing that the sun is beginning to touch the horizon and that they know that this large group of people is starting to get hangry. They hatched a plan. But Jesus counters. No, no, no. You give them something to eat. And the apostles freak out a little. That would take more than half a year's wages. Are, you, are, are we to go spend that type of money on this? Are you serious? And realistically, without taking hours to go out and buy food, there is no way, humanly speaking, that the apostles can provide the needed food to a group of this size. But unfazed, Jesus says, or asks, how many loaves do you have? The apostles go out and count. They find five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus does something very interesting and probably pretty confusing for the disciples. He requests that everybody sit down on the green grass. Okay. They are in a solitary place, and so often we think solitary means desert, but that's not what's happening here. This is it's lush and green. We shouldn't picture a desert. 
So the first interesting piece is the grass. But the second one, even more interesting and more confusing, is the word sit. Sit down. And in Greek, this is the word that they use for recline. Okay? And as you're probably aware, in first century Palestine, it was quite traditional for people to recline at a, a low table, and that's how they would eat. But when they would recline, there would be an expectation that there would be a full meal. This isn't some come-and-go snack or some stand-up reception. By Jesus using the specific term recline, he is suggesting that a special meal is being prepared for the crowd. And can you imagine the confusion on the apostles' faces? Like, why are we reclining? We've only got five loaves and two fish. But then in verse 41, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. Flatbread and fish. I'm not sure about you, but I'm picturing a fish taco. Mark doesn't unpack the mechanics of this moment. Does the food miraculously multiply at the prayer of blessing or with the apostles' distribution? We just don't know. What we do know is that the food is multiplied in such a way that all 5,000 men plus women and children ate until they were satisfied and there were 12 baskets of fish tacos left over. And as we have at multiple times through the gospel, Mark, we are once again confronted with the miraculous. How what type of reaction do you have when you're confronted with the miraculous, with the supernatural? How do you react when you hear this story? As you can probably imagine, there have been many attempts to explain this miracle away. Um, the, uh, people will try and say it was some sleight of hand or it was some miscalculation of the author. And, as you can, and, and many have suggested that there must be a natural way to explain this event even if we don't yet have the technology to figure it out, someday we will. It's a natural explanation somehow. But if you're anything like me, when I hear that type of thing, it's tempting to cast a disapproving look at those who try to find a natural way to explain the supernatural and to minimize God's word. I think to myself, oh, I would never do that. I have more faith than that. Of course God could provide this miraculously. And, and even earlier in the passage, when the apostles complained about the cost of providing food for the 5,000, I'm like, ha, where's your faith, guys? Don't you know Jesus has got this? But I ask you, friends, as we look back into church history, have there ever been moments where Christians have shifted their understanding of God to accommodate the dominant culture around or the naturalistic culture around? Are we so quick to forget that a frog grows accustomed to the increasing heat of the water? It's easier than we might think to allow our dominant culture to be the lens in which we make sense of God and his word, rather than allowing God and his word to be the lens to make sense of our dominant culture. Allow me to illustrate. If I would pass out a survey to everybody here right now with a single question, here's the question. What advice do you have for someone who is looking to get a job? I can guess there are many answers that would be similar to how I've answered this in the past. Uh, write a good resume, study hard, major in a field with a good career options, maybe utilize the connections of your parents, and as I was told, treat finding a job as a full-time job. Now, these are all good answers, but what we see in today's text what should our first reaction be? 
we're invited from this text to, to, to turn toward the provider first. Why isn't our first reaction prayer? To fall on our knees to pray to the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of work for help with finding a job. Why is it all about resumes, connections, and hard work? Brian Fickert, in his book, Becoming Whole, names this tension as evangelical Gnosticism. He writes, evangelical Gnosticism would suggest that God is Lord over our spiritual lives, but the rest of life is governed by natural forces that we can master through our hard work. Now, please don't mishear what I'm saying. I am not saying that we should be expecting a miracle at every corner. And I'm also not saying that hard work should be discouraged. But rather, I'm encouraging us to consider James chapter 1, verse 17, which says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly, heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Brian Fickert continues in his book, and this is a long quote, but a good one. He says, Every good and perfect gift includes both the normal way that God works in his world, creating and sustaining what are commonly called the laws of nature, and the unusual ways that he sometimes intervenes through miracles. When the penicillin works time and again, in exactly the same way each time, that is God's hand. And when studying hard in college leads to a good jo job, that's him again. And when people with incurable cancer are suddenly cancer-free for reasons the doctors can't explain, that's him too. A biblical perspective recognizes that God is active all the time, that we are completely dependent upon him, and that we should thank him for his provision, whether he has acted naturally or supernaturally. So however God chooses to act, whether it be miraculously or naturally, let us turn our hearts in thanksgiving for his divine intervention and to proclaim the arrival of God's reign here. As we have journeyed through the Gospel of Mark, it's clear that the author's priority is about presenting Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom rather than unpacking the particular mechanics of a specific miracle. Mark wrote this gospel so that we would encounter the living Jesus and be transformed. And so I'd like to just unpack several ways that this story can impact our lives today. First, offer what you have to God. James R. Edwards writes, Jesus had no intention of being a solo artist in the work to which God had called him. The disciples complain about what they lack. Jesus focuses on what they possess. The problem will not be resolved by something beyond them, but by something from among them. Jesus sees possibilities where his disciples see only impossibilities. For God can multiply even the smallest gifts if they are made available to him. Just as Pastor Cam unpacked last week, Jesus is starting to intentionally utilize the apostles as sent ones. Jesus fully intends that the good news of the kingdom be continually spread by his followers. God still chooses to use his people to advance his kingdom by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, all of whom are mouthpieces of the kingdom wherever they go. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. God, Jesus transforms what the apostles already have and then utilizes these same apostles in the distribution of God's provision to the crowd. 
Jesus questioned the apostles, what do you have? And this same question jumps off the page of Scripture. Friends, what do you have? What is in your hand? I can hear it already. You know, but pastor, you don't know me. You don't, you don't know where I've been. You don't, you don't know what I've done. I've only been here for a couple weeks. Why are you picking on me? God can't use me. I'm not good enough. And in the Old Testament book of Exodus, we see an individual who had also had a list of excuses. And they're actually pretty good excuses of why God should choose someone else. Moses had made poor choice after poor choice. And now was hiding in the desert when God met him to ask him to lead the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. Exodus 4, starting in verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And with Moses' submission, God transformed him into the, one of the great shepherds of God's people. So friends, what is in your hand? Let's not overcomplicate this. Are you breathing? Good. Offer your life to God. Are you at church today? Great. Find someone that you don't recognize and introduce yourself. Do you eat food? Great. Invite someone to come eat with you. Do you have a spare bedroom? Awesome. Offer it to someone in need. Do you have an extra hour? Let us connect, with, connect you to some dynamite ministries here in Winnipeg. Do you like to hold babies? Sign up to help in the nursery. Are you someone who likes to ask good questions and you're a good, and a good listener? I don't care how old you are. Please sign up to be a youth leader. Are you gifted in finance, carpentry, cooking, 3D printing, model rockets? I don't know. Don't overcomplicate it. You don't need more training. You need more submission. Offer what you have to God. Secondly, trust Jesus to do what only he can do. Warren uh, Risby writes about the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus looked at the situation not as a problem, but as an opportunity to trust the Father and glorify his name. God loves to display his power in our lives. But this means that he will give us situations that are more than we can handle. Because if we can handle it on our own, how does that demonstrate God's power? God will give us more than we can handle because this is exactly where his power is revealed. I like how Pastor John Piper puts it. He says, God's design is to make you a showcase for Jesus' power, but not necessarily the way the market demands, not by getting rid of all of our weaknesses, but by giving strength to endure and even rejoice in tribulation. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where it says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It is in our weakness that God's power is displayed. And this is a truth that I remind myself of every time I step on this platform. 
poet and songwriter Andy Squires has this powerful quote. And, and while Andy Squires wouldn't normally be someone I would include in the sermon, I felt this was too good to pass up. Here it is. God is always faithful, but he is extremely unpredictable. You cannot rely on your assumptions about what he will or will not do. Look at the apostles in the early days of the church. Peter was supernaturally delivered out of prison from the edge of Herod's sword, the same sword which only days previously beheaded James, the son of thunder. So why all the difficulty? Why does God insist that the world remain unyieldingly chaotic? My conclusion is this. Only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. And only in a world where pain is real can love be proved. Allow me to conclude with this final thought. Number three, don't be distracted by what, don't be, get so distracted by what Jesus does that you miss who he is. Today's passage is not simply a story of what Jesus did. It's a description of who Jesus is. And so if you forget everything else from today's sermon, remember this point. The feeding of the 5,000 reminds us that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. For thousands of years, it had been prophesied that God would return as a good shepherd who rescues his sheep. In Ezekiel 34, the prophecy reads, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. Do you remember Moses, the, the mess up who God used by showing, showing him what could be done with a walking stick? <laughs> Moses went from caring for his father-in-law's sheep in the desert to negotiating the release of God's people from Egypt and then leading them through the desert to the promised land. And in that, he gained the reputation of being a great shepherd to God's people. There's a few really interesting things about Moses. First of all, yeah, by God's power, he acted as a shepherd to God's people. He saw God provide food called manna six days out of every week as they navigated the desert. And thirdly, in a little bit of a, an interesting detail, he organized God's people into groups of hundreds and fifties. But what's so fascinating that is in today's story, we see Jesus, who is described as the good shepherd in John 10, who did provide food for the crowd, and who also, interestingly, organized the group as they sat on the grass into groups of hundreds and fifties. In, in today's story, the crowd was looking for a new healing, a new teaching, or a military leader. They didn't get what they wanted, but what they, what they needed was a new shepherd, and that's exactly what they received. Mark is purposefully adding these details so that we don't miss this. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who had been prophesied and now is being revealed to this crowd. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 10 says it clearly. I, this is Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who provides for our needs. And as people went home after eating on the grass beside the Sea of Galilee, I wonder if some of them would have been saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Friends, there is no prerequisites 
for Jesus' compassion. For he is the new shepherd, one who comes to refresh your soul. He showed great compassion to come to the rescue in the wilderness to feed 5,000 people. And he showed great compassion and came to the rescue in a lonely place on a hill called Calvary. Jesus is our rescuer. He is our shepherd. He is our savior. Jesus knelt in the mud to lift us out. And as was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. My friends, let him gather you. Let him carry you. We're going to be transitioning into communion in in just a a few moments. But I just want to land here for a few minutes or for, for a bit. Let him gather you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've been experiencing, but I never want to give up an opportunity to invite you to say yes to Jesus. If you've never made Jesus your leader, if, he's never, if you've never said yes to him and accepted him as your leader and as, and as your savior, this is the time to do that. That's what we're all about here. We're all about walking through life, stumbling towards Jesus together, knowing we're not going to get it totally right, but knowing that with Jesus, life makes sense even if life is hard. And so uh, when, when we unpack communion, the, the, the cup and the bread representing the, the body and the blood of Jesus, that sacrifice on the cross for us, this is an opportunity for us to say yes to, to Jesus. And so I'm going to lead in a prayer to wrap up our time here, and then the band will come up after the prayer to, to sing a song, and then we'll have communion after that. But if you've never accepted Jesus, would you pray along with me? Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, I need help. Thank you for coming to rescue me. I know that I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness, and I believe that you died for my brokenness and rose from the dead. I turn from my sin and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and my Savior. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your compassion Thank you that you meet us where we are at. Thank you that you invite us to say yes to you and to submit our lives to you. Father, I pray that as we remember your sacrifice, your death and your resurrection, I pray, O Lord, that you would implant on our hearts the significance of that so that we can move forward in our lives with a confidence knowing that the price has been paid and we have been offered a new life in you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.